A Garuda Indonesia 737-400 is doing a short flight in Indonesia when it unexpectedly overruns the runway at the airport at Yogyakarta. What caused this flight's landing to go so wrong? Hi. Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. She always does this thing where she starts it and just stares at me. (laughs) And she doesn't say anything. So I'm usually talking when this happens. And then it's just like awkward silence where they're both staring at me. And I go, oh, we're recording. I got the power. So, hi. Hi. I apologize in advance. I might burp a couple times. <laughs> because we found ginger beer at Walmart. More for the blooper reel or really funny spots in the episode. Yeah, I might keep a few of them in. We'll see. Uh, fun fact, Miranda loves ginger beer. I do. And, and mules. mules. Mm-hmm. I love mules. So, I have a mule and I'm going to drink it and I'm probably going to burp. So Fair. Not trying to be gross. You've been warned in advance. I am I am drinking Angry Orchard with butterscotch schnapps because I have no class. And I just have a stomach full of leftover pizza, which might be upset later. Pizza! So. so. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You got to do it. You got to do it. I can't do the thing. Pizza. Also, so this will probably be the week that we need to announce the new uh, listener episode theme so the one for february is when you fell in love with aviation the story that you tell when you about when you fell in love with aviation oh any types right so skydiving (laughs) david david uh (laughs) or uh, flying on planes flying planes just being going places yeah so and i fell in love with air disasters (laughs) <laughs> That's exactly what happened. Yeah. Because I'll tell actually. you something. I didn't care diddly squat about aviation. Most people. Even when we were traveling until after we watched Tenerife. Air Disasters. Yeah. yeah. Most people don't know they're fascinated in this stuff. And that they'd be fascinated in aviation until they just find out a little more. If you're and then you're like, rookie mistake. <laughs> you don't pull up. You push down. What is he doing? <laughs> and if you're here, you probably already figured that out. So. Yeah. So, oh, let me let me make a disclaimer real quick. So in the newsletter, if you get the newsletter, there was a thing with this month that said, expect Brendan. Well, he wasn't here. Let me explain. <laughs> so I put him in because we don't know really when he decides to come over You're and just be like here. day of, he's like, are, are you, you recording today? Yeah. <laughs> We're like, yeah. He's like. Cool, I'm going to come sit in. Yeah. We're like, cool, fine. So he's going to be in pretty much every single newsletter. And if he's here, he's here. And if he's not, he's not. We planned for him to be here and then our schedule got all messed up. So And he went on a trip. Yeah. yeah. So his favorite he was supposed to be ship. here last week and then we didn't do it last week. And then he went on a trip and then he was tired today after he got home from work. So. I don't blame him. He got off a plane at 6.30 last night. Yeah. Got home at probably... 8.30-ish, probably crashed because he'd been traveling for three days, and then had to go to work early this morning and deal with children all day. Yeah. Literally. So, there's a little um, bit of a disclaimer for you. Yep. Sorry for a little bit of a, kind of a long introduction, I guess. 
to this episode. But those were a few things we wanted to cover. The themes for February and then the little disclaimer in the newsletter. In case you were like, Brendan wasn't on this month and you said he was going to be on this month and I'm upset. There you go. There you go. So (laughs) (laughs) he will be on in the future as always. He just chooses when to come. So that's fair. I think that's all we need to cover. Is there anything else we need to cover? I don't think so. No. All right. So I think that pretty much I, covers it. So everything being said from that, what are we covering today, Nick? So today we're covering Garuda Indonesia Flight 200. Which may be a little bit touchy, considering when we're recording this. It yes. wasn't a Garuda flight, to be fair. No, it was, was a 737 and in Indonesia. The other Garuda that we've covered is 152. Some of you have already looked it up, and I'm assuming you did because of the crash that happened in Indonesia. It's episode six, just so you know. And we are recording this the day after. Well, two days after two it days happened. After. Two days after the Sriwijaya crash. Thank you to our dedicated listener, Akil, for recommending this flight. Yes, yeah, thank you. Thank you. He recommended this a long time ago, and it really just happened to fall this weekend. So... We questioned if it was in good taste to record this. But totally different circumstances, similar airplane, different airline, but also in Indonesia. So it's kind of like that 50-50, I don't know what the right thing to do is, but... Also, we said it was going out this month, and we told you it was going out this month, so... So just know we acknowledge the timeliness and synchronicity of the circumstances, and... Yeah, so remember, we... We have like pretty much a recommendation heavy schedule. Extremely. So we, I mean, right now we are booked through the beginning of August. August, thank you. So August. we're booked and it through is the beginning January of August. 11th, <laughs> yeah. Currently. So actually, I think it's actually midway through August now. So realize that we book. I mean, we get these recommendations six, seven, eight months in advance. Eight so months ahead of time. Please know that we did not realize that this would happen. On and the weekend, it's also nobody really does. It's also really hard to change our schedule. So. so, there's a little disclaimer for you for the actual episode, and let's get into the what happened. Yeah. So this happened on March 7th of 2007. This is a Boeing 737-400 with the tail number Papa Kilo Golf Zulu Charlie. It was a scheduled flight from Jakarta International in Jakarta, Indonesia, to Jogjakarta. Yes, that is confusing. But it's also spelt different. It's almost spelled more yo. It's Yogyakarta, but it is Jogjakarta. Jogjakarta. Welcome to Indonesian, which none of us speak. Yeah. This flight was to have two pilots, five flight attendants, and 133 passengers. Pretty full flight. The 737-400s were part of the classic series of 737s that were smaller, but they put a lot of people in the 737-400. I mean, we, we stepped up to the 737NGs after this, and the 737NG, the 800, was the most similarly sized to the 400, and it was actually bigger, but they put just as many people in it, so the 400 kind of really crammed people in. Also, uh, fun fact, I cover a 800 in my Miranda episode yeah. this month, so if that. you want to listen to that, check out the Patreon. There's the plug for that. Okay. Please okay. go on. Moving on. <laughs> the captain for the flight was Muhammad Komar. He was 44 years old. He had 13,421 hours total. Wow. He's pretty experienced. Of yeah. which 3,703 hours were on the 737. So 
relatively good. experienced on that. Yeah. He had he was with uh, Garuda for 21 years up to the point of the accident. That's a long time. Yeah. I mean, to be fair, we're 24, 25 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's most of our lives. <laughs> Although it's not consecutively. How long's your dad been with the airline? Now 23, I think. Nice. I think well, it's yeah. up, I think it's up but to 23. For a pilot, now. I would think it would be consecutive. I know. I'm just saying, like, it's really easy to be loyal to a certain airline when True. you're in the commercial aviation industry. Yes. And the first officer for the flight was Gagam Rohmana. He was 30 years old. He had 1,528 hours, so not very many hours. In the U.S., currently, he would barely qualify yeah. to be an airline pilot. Literally 28 hours over. Yep. Of which he had 1,353 hours on the 737. So wow. <laughs> almost all of his time was on the 737, except probably his initial training. The captain was to be the pilot flying for the flight, while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. The captain arrived at Jakarta to prepare for the flight at 4.30 a.m. Ew. <laughs> it's kind of crazy how early people wake up to do this stuff. Yes. I wake up at 7.30 to go to work at 7.30. <laughs> I wake up at 4.30 to be at work at 6. So. But he got to the airport at 4.30. As a disclaimer, I work from home. That's why I can do that. So yes. That's why. Shut up. <laughs> I can't. During pushback, the captain informed the ground engineers that the number one thrust reverser fault light was on in the cockpit. The engineers reset the thrust reverser in the engine accessories unit, and the light extinguished, so... It wasn't on anymore. Problem resolved. That's a little bit of a problem, though. Yeah. It's fine. It's fine. You say that now. It's fine. But was it? (laughs) Spoiler, it actually is fine. Okay, cool. It's fine. (laughs) (laughs) The scheduled departure time was 6 a.m. for the flight. Oh my gosh, I hate flights that leave so early. We've taken earlier flights. I also hate those flights. (laughs) Well, and this flight in particular actually was early, but it wasn't very long. So, I mean, we're talking less than an hour flight. Oh, okay. It's That's a not very, that bad. So it's like flying to Salt Lake City. Okay. Yeah, basically. It's a very, I, it's a very short flight. I still wouldn't want to fly to Salt Lake City at 6 a.m., but you know. <laughs> no, but this flight in particular was actually very full because there were uh, people from the Australian government visiting. And journalists. And so this flight was full of journalists and government staff, basically protective staff, for the government officials that were in Australia. None so, of... at the time, ties between Indonesia and Australia were... Not great. Tenuous, is the word I'm going to use. Um, so, it was a big deal that Australian heads of state were coming to visit Indonesia. So, that's why there was a plane full of journalists. And it was also the front teams of security to scope out the place, make sure everything was safe before the heads of state got there. Right. Mm-hmm. So they were on the flight early. It was just a scheduled flight, but they were on there as some of the passengers traveling to Jojakarta to scope it out and be ready and be ahead of the heads of state. Excuse me. You sure. might not be able to cut that out. I won't. <laughs> I already told them in advance that was going to happen. Go on. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Anyways. The flight actually departed at 6.17 a.m., so 17 minutes behind schedule. You're running late. Yeah, on a short flight. 17 minutes, not that bad. That's not that bad. 
As the flight was nearing its cruising altitude of flight level 270, or 27,000 feet, they were instructed by the air traffic controller to contact the approach control for Joe Jakarta. That's how short this flight was. Great. <laughs> and the crew acknowledged. At 6.43 a.m., the captain began giving an approach briefing, but was interrupted by the air traffic controller giving the flight clearance and instructions to approach for runway 09 at Joe Jakarta, and requested that they report when leaving flight level 270, so when they were going to begin their descent, so that they have an idea of when this airplane is going to fall through other airplanes' paths. The crew acknowledged, then the captain began his approach briefing again, explaining that they would use the instrument landing system approach for runway 9 with a course of 088. He Then he explained the airport elevation, the flap settings of 40 degrees for landing, planned approach speed of 136 knots, minimum descent altitude of 700 feet, and that the parking stand would be on the left after landing, and then the missed approach procedure should they have to go around. Seems uh, pretty well prepared. I mean, that has that's a pretty normal part of doing anything in a cockpit, is your briefings. Yeah, well, we've covered flights that didn't do great with that part of the flight, yeah. so... Well, well he, he did great. He did this yeah. part great. Good job. Yep. Clearly something went wrong, or it wouldn't be on this podcast, yep. so... 12 minutes and 17 seconds later, the air traffic controller cleared the flight, quote, for visual approach runway 09, proceed to long final, report runway in sight, end quote. The first officer acknowledged and requested confirmation that they were cleared down to pattern altitude for the airport. The air traffic controller then replied, quote, descend down to 2,500 initially. So wanted them to come down to 2,500 feet rather than fully down to pattern altitude, which was lower. Okay. The crew were performing the instrument landing system in visual conditions, but they had not informed the air traffic, air traffic controller that they were going to do the ILS approach. Not really a big deal, because it is more of an assistance for them, just to keep the airplane on track. But in visual conditions, still, I mean, they should be telling them, hey, just so you know, we're going to shoot the ILS, and then they should be cleared for it in theory. Also, the ILS is just like a comfortable approach. Yes. Well, it's a very easy way to make sure you're on the glide slope at all times. As we discussed in last week's episode. Yep. <laughs> Airplane approached the airport very quickly, and they were transferred to a different local air traffic controller. A short time later, the captain called for the landing gear to be extended, and, again, and the first officer complied and extended the landing gear. The airplane then crossed the threshold of the runway, then suddenly the plane bounced hard on the runway, then bounced hard again. And on the third touchdown, the nose gear shattered. Ah! The airplane then slid down the remainder of the runway before leaving the end at 110 knots, destroying a perimeter fence, crossing a road, and striking an embankment with a concrete gutter, separating the right wing completely from the airplane, which catapulted over the fuselage and landed on the left wing before the whole wreckage came to rest in a rice field. They're going so fast! Why are they going so fast? You don't even know how fast they're going. He just said 110 knots. Through at the end of the runway. This is, mind you, they bounced, collapsed on the gear, and I mean, they they slid off the end of the runway. I mean, that's a, that seems so fast for landing, though. I mean, not necessarily. No, to be fair, I don't know much about landing. A 737, what is, so... Well, you might remember earlier that their approach speed was 136 knots. Hmm. Okay. As reported in the briefing. So they bounced, bounced again, bounced, shattered the front landing gear? Yep, the front landing gear. Here we can show and you. And then a... just went through everything. Yeah. 
great. We can show you a simulation. Many people survived the impact with minor harm done. One person, a journalist, with his camera quickly managed to exit the airplane and began filming the evacuation and wreckage as it caught fire and began to burn rapidly in a large plume of smoke out in an open rice field. This was pretty remarkable because most times you can't get this kind of footage so quickly after it happened. And to see, like, raw, the people, like, staggering away from the airplane is kind of crazy. This just doesn't normally get captured. Dude, what the heck? We're just having the footage playing while Nick finishes. Many people exited the airplane quickly, but the overwing exits were difficult to open. When the overwing exits were finally opened, injured people exited those, and those in good shape assisted the injured in escaping the burning plane as best as they could. The flight crew managed to escape the airplane in short order. Which is pretty incredible if you saw the nose earlier. Yeah, it was pretty, it's folded up. <laughs> it was bad. It was done. The wreckage was bad. The airplane destroyed the perimeter fence of the airport, obviously. A large gouge on the runway was shown. The embankment and the rice field were both destroyed. Obviously. The airplane broke into several large pieces upon final impact, i.e. the wing came off. Yeah. Airport emergency crews arrived nearby quickly, as in within one minute, but they had a very difficult time reaching the actual accident site out in the middle of the rice paddy. Their hoses were being punctured by debris, plants, and cars driving over them on the nearby road, as well as rocks and concrete. Shattered concrete. Bruh. Other local firefighter units arrived at the crash site a short time later and assisted with the firefighting and rescue operations as best as they could. However, it took about 2 hours and 40 minutes to extinguish the fire, due to the difficulties experienced by the first responders. In all, one crew and 20 passengers perished in the crash, one crew and 11 passengers were seriously injured, two crew and 98 passengers were only minorly injured, and three crew and four passengers were uninjured. Nobody on the ground was injured in the accident, thankfully. So, remind me again how many people were on... There were 103, 133 passengers, five cabin crew, and two pilots for a total of 140. And how many perished? Uh, there were a total of 21. Oh, 21. I thought I heard 121, and no. I was like, what? 21. Okay. One crew member and 20 passengers. Was that just from impact? Uh, between impact and fire. And yes. fire. So smoke inhalation, probably. Yes, more than likely. Wow. But yes, impacts were very, very heavy. So that did some... Serious so they, injuries. They caught the ILS and they bounced more than once. Yes. And then... They touched down a total of three times. Wow. It's it, To be fair, for everyone who's like trying to go through my thought process, it's really hard for me to process the fact that they didn't just do a go around after the second. Even See? after the first time they bounced. We will get into that. Great. <laughs> well, and I mean, I don't think I've been in a plane that's bounced before, but I've seen planes bounce once and then yeah. land. I mean, most of the time, if you're a passenger, that bounce is pretty insignificant. You so, wouldn't notice much. I mean, I've hit the runway pretty hard before, but these, St. Louis. These yeah. bounces were not insignificant. They were pretty heavy. Okay. Well, I'm sure Christy will get into why. Yes. Cool. At any part, did they activate the the... Thrust reversers or the brakes or anything? Yes. Yes. The thrust okay. reversers and the brakes were both applied. However, we'll talk more about that. Okay. Okay. 
This investigation was performed by the Indonesian National Transportation Safety Committee and was aided by the Australian Transportation Safety Board. Since, you know, there were Australian nationals on board. Yeah, it makes sense. Turns out there are actually, like, ICAO laws about who can be involved. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Well, I would assume it would only be countries that actually have some reason to be involved. Yeah, so it's usually country of incident, nationals on board, and airline. And right. sometimes manufacturer. So the NTSB oh, was actually is a big deal too. The NTSB was actually involved too because of yes, so it was a seven thirty seven a Boeing yeah. airplane. I believe there was one NTSB representative on the ground, but don't quote me on that. Okay, I won't quote you on that. Thanks. <laughs> Great. Both black boxes were recovered and were sent out for analysis. Much to the dismay of investigators, the Indonesian police inserted themselves into the investigation and made it a criminal matter against the captain, who accordingly refused to be cooperative as he would have been otherwise. Excuse me? That is exactly why it isn't a common practice to do such a thing. We will... You don't have any evidence yet. Why would you do that? Right. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. But, so, right now, crew's not being cooperative because it's like, you did this, and it's like, you have no evidence. So they they just shut down. Normally, crews are really cooperative with these types of investigations, and they just weren't. Well, like, the NTSB brings them in for interrogations and stuff. Yeah. So the only time normally that criminal investigative authorities are brought in is under suspicion of... Terrorism. Terrorism. Etc. So intentional. Or sabotage. Yeah. yeah. Intentional incidents. So... Intentional or negligence. Yeah. Which... This, this accident is used as an example of why you shouldn't do what the Indonesian police did. The American Bar Association cites this criminal investigation as exactly why you should not interfere in an accident investigation until it's closed. Yeah, wait until they have all the information first and then open an investigation if you deem fit. Don't do it at the beginning when you have no idea what's happening. Right. They have no answers. And that might mean that the investigation takes a couple years. Cool your jets. They're still alive. It's not like they're not going anywhere. Because it actually makes it harder to do the criminal investigation when you can't get the answers you need right away. It's also harder to do the accident investigation because then they don't want to cooperate. Because they think that it's going to get them thrown in jail. Exactly. For those of you listeners who got my pun, thank you. These two ignored me. Oh, I got it. I, I just skipped right over it. I didn't hear it. So. <laughs> I said, cool your jets. Oh. Yeah. I okay, just, that deserves I just, to be ignored. <laughs> I just skipped right over it. <laughs> okay. In the meantime, and while other investigators began looking through wreckage and such mess, other investigators looked at the runway for clues. It was quickly evident that the accident aircraft had struck a total of three times, bouncing twice before the final skid that overran the runway. On the last contact, the nose gear collapsed and a sizable gouge was in the runway surface. We have pictures on the website. Uh, We both made noises when we saw it in the report separately. Ooh. Yeah. It's bad. These clues helped investigators determine from the initial skid mark that the accident crew landed long. The first skid mark was 860 meters down the runway, which was more than a third of the runway. Generally speaking, when you're learning to fly, you are told to land on the first third of the runway. Right. Yes, and there's actually thousand-foot markers, basically. You count those as your touchdown markers in most cases. 
This isn't always true, but there's basically a touchdown zone on the runway with all these markers to kind of help you follow that area and plan and aim for it. But generally, you're aiming most accurately for that 1,000-foot marker because it's almost always within the first third of the runway. Right. Yep. That didn't happen. There are a couple of reasons that would lead to a long approach and then slamming down. So investigators first looked at the weather. As we have discussed in previous episodes, phenomena such as microbursts and low-level wind shear can take the air right out from under you while cushioning you before that. And this is particularly destructive at low altitudes and airspeeds, such as during landing. There was a strong westerly wind at higher altitudes, such as at Flight 200's cruising altitude, but the METAR for the airport showed winds at 10 knots and the winds observed at the exact time of the accident were calm. No microbursts, no low-level wind shear. So that's out. A question you might have asked by now, if they landed 860 meters down the runway, did they have enough room to stop? Calculations show that there is no reason a perfectly functional 737 that floated a little long couldn't have stopped in time. So was it perfectly functional? That's a dangerous question. Mm -hmm. In general, there are two places that investigators look when a mechanical failure is suspected. Maintenance logs and wreckage. Maintenance logs showed that for the previous 27 flights, the left thrust reverser was not working. Right. But maintenance crews reset and fixed it prior to the accident flight while they were on the ground in Jakarta. What if it didn't work? Records showed that the thrust reversers were stowed during final impact. But flight data recorder data came back. Yippee. And it showed that the flight crew did deploy both thrust reversers successfully, but stowed them before impact. What? Wait. Whoa, 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 to be whoa. exact, to be exact, when they touched down, finally... They extended them for seven seconds, and then they stowed them for the last seven seconds of runway. Why? 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 Um, Why? Mostly because they were on the engines, roughly. The nose gear collapsed, so the engines were then scraping the ground, and then they were fast approaching a fence. So they closed them. They closed them. I don't... They didn't go much into that, but they did work, so that was not the problem. I feel like if they would have just let them run it would have helped them stop Uh, not much no turns out so investigators kept looking at the wreckage and found something a little odd oh good each control surface on an aircraft is actuated in a manner of ways hydraulically cable driven what have you and the flaps on this aircraft were actuated with a jack screw or screw jack depending on who you ask the final resting position of the screw jacks on the flaps shows a flap settings of only five degrees Weren't they it's supposed to be at 40 degrees? Uh-huh. Yes. Uh-huh. So this is concerning. Why? Flaps are used during low-speed phases of flight, like takeoff and landing. They extend from the back of the wing and increase the surface area of the wing, which allows for more lift at slower speeds. Normal practice on landing a 737 is full flaps at 40 degrees, whereas the flaps in the wreckage showed only being out 5 degrees. No crew would do such a thing. Right. You really can't Uh-oh. land an airplane with five degrees of flaps. I mean, a 737 with five degrees of flaps. There's very rare circumstances where you could. This isn't one of them. So were they just not paying attention? They didn't realize it was only five instead of 40? We'll get well, into that. slow your roll for a second. Because it's possible that the wreckage shifted during impact. Okay, that's true. So investigators needed to look at the flight data recorder to confirm the flap setting. Pretty basic. And the data showed that the flaps were set to five degrees. Okay. For the duration of the approach. Listen, 
someone's not doing the job right. We'll get to that, but it's not at all what you think. Oh, good. (laughs) But investigators needed the cockpit voice recorder to confirm what exactly was happening in the cockpit at the time, but the local lab was having a hard time retrieving the data, so the CVR had to be sent to the manufacturer in the United States. Yeah. Long ways away. Meanwhile, investigators continued to study the flight data recorder data and found that 473 feet above the ground, flaps were lowered to 5 degrees, and the airspeed was a whopping 248 knots. (laughs) Insanely fast. Really fast. Insanely fast. Seven seconds before touchdown, the plane crossed the threshold 89 feet above the ground with a descent rate of 1,400 feet per minute and an airspeed of 234 knots. That's too fast. Way too fast. Also, too high. I'm not a pilot or an engineer, but that sounds way too fast. Investigators also found that their descent did not match the ILS because they were too high and descended quickly. So similar to last week, we have a graph of the descent profile on the website. Ta-da! So they weren't on the ILS approach Right, the pink was the ILS. So they weren't tuned into that radio frequency. They They probably were, were, they just weren't using it. They weren't using the glide slope indication. Well, now we have the CVR data. Huzzah! Huzzah! Good job, Americans. (laughs) They got it figured out. That's one of the only things we can say yay about for Americans right now. And, oh my god, is there a lot to unpack here. The captain realized during the descent that they were above the descent profile. Not of too much concern. And he said something along the lines of, looks like we're not going to hit the glide slope, better get down low faster. And spent the next two minutes reducing speed to 243 knots and losing 2,900 feet. Okay, Okay, real quick. That is ridiculous. So... And I realize, I don't know how far away they are. It says about 10 nautical miles when they're mm-hmm. too high, right? Uh-huh. They're still too high at about 4 nautical miles. Uh-huh. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Let me let me finish. <laughs> it, it's hard for me to believe that at that point they didn't say, okay, we should do a go-around because we're too high. So yes. it is before decision altitude. It is before decision is altitude. Which is 7 something, right? 700 feet is what It depends on the approach. That's minimum descent altitude was MDA. But minimum decision height is usually 200 feet. 200? That's usually minimums. Okay. Okay. So we're not there yet. All right. He has time. It might not be comfortable for the flight crew. Passengers probably wouldn't notice. We're fine. He's just like, we're a little high. Let's fix this. During this time period, they descended below 10,000 feet while being over 250 knots. Why is that a problem, Nick? Because speed limits... The ICAO mandated speed limits around the world for all aircraft, and you are not allowed to exceed 250 knots under 10,000 feet unless you're under very, very, very specific approved circumstances. They did Usually the, the military. This doesn't happen with any commercial flight. They did not inform the controller that they were doing this, and they did not ask for approval. Right. So... They're going too fast. Way too fast. They were over the speed limits. Which you might remember from the New York air collision was kind of where that started because they were going way too fast and there were no speed limits. So they could do that. Passing through 4,000-ish feet, the captain said the following in Indonesian, but I'm reading the translation. Oops, strong wind. Which is an odd statement, seeing as he had known for at least eight minutes, according to the CVR, that they had a tailwind and that the wind was actually weaker as they were descending. Mm-hmm. That's weird. The first officer didn't comment on the wind and its effect, so he just kept his mouth shut. Eleven seconds later, the captain said, again translated, The target is 6.6 ILS. We will not reach it. 
He then tried to, quote, trade off excess airspeed and lose height, but only succeeded in flying a flight path that was erratic in pitch, causing the airspeed and altitude to vary considerably. The pilot in command flew an unstabilized approach, end quote. Unstabilized approaches are really dangerous. Unstabilized approach means you're not actually approaching the airport. Yeah. It's also a technical term for... It is. It is a technical technical term. term. Because the other... The inverse is a stabilized approach, which is what you do when you approach an airport. Yep. You you want to be on a stabilized approach or you're not going to land that airplane. Not safely, obviously. So... Company procedures dictate that as they approach the final approach point, which is a technical point, configuration should be gear extended, flaps 15, and airspeed 150 knots. In this instance, they were uh, at 254 knots, no gear and no flaps. Oh, good. Way behind so the curve. So we're doing great. Yeah. Way They're behind the curve. They're not even, at this point, it's like, listen, go around. You're not, you're not doing the right thing. Go around. The pilot in command realized the problem and proceeded to extend the flaps to the one-degree position. They were now at 3,680 feet, which is 1,180 feet higher than the profile. Now they began an ILS approach, despite being cleared for a visual approach, and didn't tell ATC as such. Now the captain said, translated, Oh, there is something not right. And the speed varied wildly between 229 and 244 knots, and the pitch is going between 3.5 degrees up and 3.8 degrees down. And they were descending at 3,520 feet per minute. Oh, no! That's rough. That's steeper than Trans-Colorado last week. That is steeper than Trans-Colorado. I I just don't get it. So, from where you discussed they started this, right? They realized Mm -hmm. they're too high. Mm-hmm. Even at the point where you say that they're still too high, right? And he realizes they're too high. They had plenty of time at that point, technically, to get down to the proper altitude. But the way that they're doing it isn't... It, it's just not right. Nope. It's like they don't know how to fly the aircraft properly. Nope, just wait. All the things that are going to make you really mad are still to come. Oh, great. <laughs> and now for our favorite thing. At this point, a total of six sink rate alerts from the ground proximity <laughs> warning system have sounded. And the captain asked for flaps 15, to which the first officer responded, flaps 5. Which confused investigators, What? but later made a lot of sense. There are speed limitations to various flap settings, otherwise the flaps will just rip off of the plane. Makes sense. Yep. And even at flaps 5, they were going too fast. So, what the first officer didn't verbalize was that he was intent on keeping flaps at 5 because they were going 35 and a half knots too fast for flaps 15. Which is way too fast. Dude. Well, I mean, okay, so to be fair, he did the right thing to say, we're not doing 15, we're doing 5. But he didn't say why. But he didn't say why. So and the captain, it never and he sparked is pilot in the captain's monitoring. brain, yeah. Now, I don't, oddly enough, I don't have the CVR transcript, but the Air Disasters episode said that they repeated this exchange of flaps 15, flaps 5, flaps 15, flaps 5, several times. Can't confirm that because I only have so much mm-hmm. to work with. At some point, though, if you're going the back and forth thing where it's like 15, 5, 15, 5, someone needs to give a reason. Let's move on, just as they did. And the captain wasn't slowing down. Right. They should have landed at 141 knots, but they're at 245 knots. <laughs> they're almost 100 knots They more. are more than 100 knots more. Procedure said to not exceed a descent rate of more than 1,000 feet per minute. They're at 3,520 feet per minute descent, right? Dude, 
Go around, man. Toga. And Do the, something. And the ground proximity warning system is still going off. So, to answer your question, at what point do you call a missed approach? According to the airline manual, quote, an approach that becomes unstabilized before a thousand feet height above aerodrome in IMC or instrument meteorological conditions or below 500 feet HAA in visual meteorological conditions requires an immediate go around. When the plane was 217 feet above the aerodrome, the first officer called, Why, Captain, go around, Captain. But the pilot in command continued the approach. The first officer actually called to go around a total of two times. Whoop, whoop, pull up. Then the pilot in command asked if the landing checklist had been completed. Um, okay. Wait a minute. What? And then, so, they, you haven't completed your landing checklist. You don't is, know that yeah. you've completed it. Also, you have a person right next to you, which at this point, right, CRM, big thing, yep. super thing, Huge. saying, you need to go around. Bruh, you need to go around. And he just ignores him. And, Excuse me? And then asks for flaps to be extended to 15 degrees again. Excuse me? While the GPWS is going off. Excuse me. Excuse me. What are you doing? And then he continued to fly the airplane to the ground. Dude. Dude. Another Dude. question you might be asking, though Miranda hasn't asked it yet in her fit of rage. At no time did the first officer take control of the aircraft. Yeah, that was my next point. And do a go around himself. So there's multiple reasons, especially in this part of the country, or not con- our country, world? but Indonesia. Yes, thank you. The this part, part of, of the, the world, world. Where I understand why... Potentially, the first officer didn't take over control. We've discussed it before. Right. But CRM was still in place. Right. They're under the ICAO's... Well, even then, the first officer should have called a missed approach way before this. Let's take a step all the way back to the beginning of the storytelling. How many hours do they have in comparison? Right. Yeah, the first officer only had just over 1,500 hours. You and the other one had 13,000. So, yes, in other words, he was a super new pilot. In reality. If you are trained properly in that airline, you should know enough to say, I need to fly this aircraft. We're in a dangerous situation. You are right. The operative word there is properly. There we go. So, to finish out my bit, I am going to once again read a long chunk of the report verbatim, because I'm good at that. (laughs) The next part is a quote regarding the phenomenon in aviation psychology known as decreased vigilance. Decreased vigilance manifests itself in several ways which can be referred to as hazardous states of awareness. These include 1. Absorption, a state of being so focused on a specific task that other tasks are disregarded. 2. Fixation, a state of being locked onto one task or one view of a situation, even as evidence accumulates that the attention is necessary elsewhere or that the particular view is incorrect. 3. The tunneling or channeling that can occur during stressful situations, which is an example of fixation. Note, the term fixation has been chosen to describe the pilot-in-command state of alertness, which provides a clearer idea of being locked onto one task than absorption. Several findings support this tunneling or channelized condition. For example, the pilot in command's attention became fixated on landing the aircraft. The concept of fixation is reinforced because he asked the co-pilot a number of times to select flaps 15 and asked if the landing checklist had been completed. The pilot in command did not respond to the 15 ground proximity warning alerts and warnings and the two calls from the pilot monitoring to go around. 
the pilot in command did not change his plan to land the aircraft, although the aircraft being in unstabilized condition. The other tasks that needed his attention were either not heard or disregarded. The auditory information about other important things did not reach his conscious awareness. The pilot in command said, The target is 6.6 ILS. We will not reach it. The pilot in command flew an unstabilized approach. He also realized the abnormal situation when he commented, Oh, there is something not right. So the pilot in command's intention to continue to land the aircraft from an excessively high and fast approach was a sign that his attention was channelized during a stressful time. The pilot in command also asked several times for the co-pilot to select Flaps 15. During interviews, he said to investigators that his goal was to reach the runway and to avoid severe damage. He heard but did not listen to the other voice, the ground proximity warning system, and Flaps 15 and Speed 205 was enough to land. The pilot in command experienced a heightened sense of urgency and was motivated to escape from what he perceived to be a looming catastrophe being too high to reach the runway. He fixated on an escape route, which seemed most obvious, aiming to get the aircraft on the ground by making a steep descent. His decision was flawed, and in choosing the landing option rather than the go-around, fixated on a dangerous option. The pilot in command was probably emotionally aroused because his conscious awareness moved from the relaxed mode singing to the heightened stressfulness of the desire to reach the runway by making an excessively steep and fast, unstabilized approach. I was going to bring that up at some point. Yeah, he's... Was... He actually was, like, humming. It was audible on the CVR at one point, while they were still too high and too fast. This oh. was early on in the approach, but he was humming. It's hard for me to believe that someone with this much experience, especially on a 737, would be... So unprofessional to ignore a full out, complete 15 signals to say you are not doing what you're supposed to. You need to go around. And then another two calls from the first officer saying you need to go around. Right. So So there's a few things at play here that we haven't talked about yet. One big one. One big one. But really, there's two big problems that made this happen. Why he had this frame of mind. So, I'm assuming it had something to do with being on time. Which may sort or may not of. be Not exactly true. right. So, a few things I want to say first before we get into that, right? Is, if you're a passenger, right? And you're on a flight that's already late. And we've we've had this experience before. Our flights have been delayed. Our flights have been late. Usually... It's because at some point the airplane had a delay for some reason. And that delay could be the reason why your life wasn't lost. Right. It's important. And a lot of people... Yes, you're you're a little inconvenienced. Yeah. But you're alive. So a lot of people would say that um, they land, he tried to land and... Again, you're going to get into this, and I'm I'm just, you know, thinking from experience here. A lot of people that we've been on flights with, right, that were passengers with us are upset that a plane is late taking off or late touching down. Mm -hmm. And my ideal being, you know, informed and being on this podcast, etc., is it's better to be safe and be late than to be on time and die. Yep. So the fact that the, he didn't go around whatever pressures he was on at the even at the 1200 foot mark would have been like there's something wrong. Right. You there is some you said there's something wrong. Landing this plane is not going to do anything for you at this point. 
Right. Just go around. Right. So what pressure was he on? So Garuda Indonesia had implemented recently a fuel incentive program where the flight crew would get a financial bonus the less fuel that they burned. Are you freaking kidding me? So a go-around would have burned a lot more fuel. Oh my god. Now, this is really key because this was also denied. Vehemently. Vehemently by the captain as the reason to why he did this. Oh, oh, hell no. Uh Uh-uh. And it's how he eventually got away. No. No, 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 no. You cannot tell me that there was this bonus, right, of the amount of fuel. First of all... That's a cost-saving measure, which is always bad. Yeah, bad on Garuda Indonesia. For sacrificing safety in terms of cost. How dare you? You are sacrificing potential people's lives. Needless to say. Not even potential, actual people's lives. Well, in this case, actual. But doing it in general... You're telling your pilots it's more important to get your plane on the ground the first time than it is to be safely... I'm, like, all flustered because this pisses me off so much. Needless to say, this changed later. Obviously. (laughs) Hopefully. But this goes a lot further than that. The European Union actually was so upset by this crash. Just like you. Great. And the... Previous crashes four, from Garuda. Five, previous, They counted four. Yes. 737 crashes in Indonesia. Or incidents in Indonesia. In the last six months. Let alone the previous major accidents from Garuda over the previous, whatever it is, ten years. So, before that was Garuda Flight 421, which we have not covered yet, which had to ditch in a river. You might remember that one. I do remember that one. And then... 152. Uh, Garuda Flight 152, which, which was the deadliest... Cover accident of this airline so the eu said screw you we're banning you from flying in the european union and they did good how dare you how dare you put costs ahead of people's lives how dare you yes we'll get a lot deeper into what changed and how deep this actually was how bad that policy was later after this break break for break break Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. So now that I'm pissed off. Yeah. Let's make it worse. Yeah. Great. So let's jump into findings here. because So I narrowed these down to just the ones I really wanted to read because there's actually a lot. There's a lot of findings. They repeat themselves a lot in the findings and the recommendations. Great. So I narrowed these down to what matter, at least as best as I thought. So. They found that the aircraft was flown at an excessively high airspeed and steep descent during the approach and landing, resulting in an unstabilized approach. Okay. Obviously. We yes. know all that. Really important, though, because those that's just like the big key, don't do that, <laughs> to don't any pilot. do that. Those big things right there are all things that say, go around. Exactly. Go around. Go, you go around. Little voice in your head. Go around. I might repost that on this post. Little voice in your head that just says, go around. 
go around. There should be a little Listen, voice. There head. wasn't a little voice. There was a loud first officer saying, ah, Captain, go around, Captain. Yeah, eventually. <laughs> Captain, and an even louder, <laughs> and an even louder alarm. They actually said in the quote that he said, wah, Captain. Wah. <laughs> yeah. Wah, Captain, then go around, Then you also have Captain. the GPWS going, terrain, terrain, pull up. Yeah, exactly. Whoop, whoop. Whoop, whoop. They found that the pilot in command did not follow company procedures that required him to fly a stabilized approach, and he did not abort the landing and go around when the approach was not stabilized. Yeah, the big thing, right? Go around! Right. They found that the co-pilot did not follow company instructions and take control of the aircraft when the pilot in command, from the pilot in command, when he saw that the pilot in command repeatedly ignored warnings to go around. Yeah, especially when he knew, because he only put the flaps out at five, right? Yeah. He knew. Oh, he knew. He's like, we're too fast. He was pilot monitoring, and he absolutely was monitoring. He noticed all these he things, noticed, but he didn't... and he didn't do anything. He didn't say anything, and he didn't take control. This was a big breakdown in crew resource management, and he probably felt really insignificant in that cockpit compared to the captain. They don't exactly know why, but it happened. I mean, yes, his hours were lower. Yes, he was new, but he still should have had this training. So, we didn't talk much about this, but their training lacked so much huge huge portions it was written into their manuals and their procedures but the training wasn't there bruh training was huge crm training hardly existed dude at that time it's 2007 mm-hmm. cursor research management became a thing in the 70s yeah 80s well this is about 30 years after tenerife yep that's yeah. when the aviation community was like oh hey this is a, a thing that we need to focus on. Yes. You're there. You're certified to fly the aircraft, too. Take over. Right. They found that the Garuda Simulator pilot proficiency check records showed no evidence that the co-pilot had been checked or received simulator training in the appropriate vital actions and responses required to retrieve a perceived or real situation that might compromise the safe operation of the aircraft. That's where he wasn't training for so resource management. So he set up for failure. Yeah. He realized that they were in a dangerous situation. He had no training on how to recover from it. Right. Per the ICAO, it was supposed to be something they trained. And it was in their manuals, so supposedly they're training on it, right? Well, they didn't. It wasn't in his records, and they didn't do it. That's why so, he didn't That's why react. he didn't take over. Yeah. Right. This captain was far more experienced than he was, so he just thought he this knew what he the, was doing. Um, assumption bias, right? Where you're like, he knows what he's doing. He's a pretty experienced person. Yeah. But that's why you have two people in the cockpit. Right. That's why you don't have just one person flying. Right. I would like the record to show that the first officer mostly wasn't blamed. No, he was not. To be fair, he realized they were in a dangerous situation. He, he realized that they needed to go around. And he didn't have the training to figure out how to do that himself. He did, even, and he did kind of push back against the captain several times because he didn't change the flap he setting. He didn't. And he did say go around. And... All these things, and it's not his fault that he wasn't trained no, 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 properly. No. Yeah, no, the, I'm not saying it's his fault. I'm just saying that boo-hoo on the company for not giving him the proper training so he could actually save this flight. Right. Because he didn't have the right training to do so. Right. Hand in hand with that, they found that the flight crew communication coordination complied with company standard operating procedures until passing 2,336 feet on descent after flap one degree was selected when it became less than effective and compromised the safety of the flight. So that that's when communication stopped, basically. It broke down completely. They didn't even do the landing checklist. 
They found that the pilot in command's attention became channelized and was fixated on landing the aircraft. That's the big question, right? Why? And that's why he got away with it, because they didn't ever prove that it was Garuda's policy that made him do this. Let's, Correct. Let's be honest, though. It was probably that policy. Yes, well, but he will continue to deny it forever. Well, and of course he will, right? Because he doesn't want to be the one that's at fault. Well, and legally, there's no way they can actually prove that's what did it. But Correct. And there's a whole host of reasons that such a psychological phenomenon could occur. Yes, there are still actual psychological well, things happening and to we, him. We talked about that, right? Being late already. Wanting to make sure people get to flights on time, etc., etc. But particularly being so fixated on something that you ignore everything else, there is now training in place to avoid such a psychological phenomenon. But the big thing is that psychological phenomenon was, you can say it was still happening regardless of that whole whole policy that Garuda had, because he also, in his mind, had it made out that they had Flaps 15... And they had done the landing checklist, but they didn't. They didn't do either of those things. Yeah. And by the way, you're supposed to do the landing checklist way before the time, even close to Way before 217 feet? Even before we get to the point where the first officer's like, bruh, this isn't right. Well, you recall at one point, they were supposed to already have gear down and flaps extended. That's part of the landing checklist. And they didn't have any flaps extended at that point. Right. And they didn't have the gear down. Right. So, like, bruh, no. Of course we didn't do it yet. Right. Go around. Right. They found that the pilot in command did not respond to the 15 ground proximity warning system alerts warnings and the two calls from the co-pilot to go around. I think the the fact that the GPWS went off 15 times. Should have been a... Should have been a... You know, maybe this isn't the best thing to do right now. That becomes a big point in the recommendation. Because it's a huge symptom of the fixation. Like, he didn't address it at all. And this also is how the investigators proved that training was poor at Garuda. Obviously. Because this exact point right here, in all other airlines, the entire... It's written by the, the ICAO and all the procedures and everything that... They're supposed to be trained on the GPWS to the point that when they hear the warning, the immediate response is to go around. Right. It is supposed to be automatic. It is supposed to be intuitive, eventually. And this right here is what investigators used to prove that the training at Garuda was poor, because they didn't. So next month, those of you who get the newsletter, I put a thing about using your instruments and using everything that is in the cockpit available to you. When you're a pilot. Mm-hmm. Because it's important. One of them is the GPWS. It's there right. for a reason. Oh, absolutely. It isn't there for ambient noise. Right. And in almost every case we've ever talked about it, it was right. It is right. <laughs> it knows what it's talking about. And a lot of pilots go, no, nah, we're not that close, right? You are. It's going off. Literally, it's doing that for a reason. I put like five or six, maybe even seven different episodes where we talk about how pilots just ignore. Well, yeah, because signs. they get they get disoriented and then they they think they're right. They think they're and right the plane and they is don't wrong. trust their instruments. But the one thing you you're supposed to be taught as an airline pilot is to always trust your instruments. Trust your instruments. Instruments are important. They're there for a reason. And there's basically a backup for everything. So if both systems for each problem are telling you there's a problem, 
there is a problem. problem. (laughs) Especially when your first officer, even though he kind of did this a little bit too late, but he's like, bruh, we're not good. You need to go around. Right. It didn't happen. Dude, take a hint. Yeah. They found that the flight crew did not complete the landing checklist. Plain and simple. Great, thanks. horrible. Yeah. At that point, if you get to a point where you're like, oh, we haven't done the landing checklist, you need to go around. Right. You haven't completed the thing for landing? Right. Exactly. They found that the wing flaps were in the five degree position. This was key. Obviously, can't land an airplane that way. They found that the pilot in command informed the investigation that his decision to continue to land, the aircraft was not in any way influenced by the airline's fuel conservation incentive program. Okay. He says that, but there's no way to know that he actually meant that. So there's something huge in relation to this fuel conservation incentive program that isn't mentioned here, but it is mentioned in the recommendations. There's a flip side. Miranda Rage warning. Yes. You're about to get so mad cover your ears potentially okay so i'm gonna take the headphones (laughs) so it wasn't just an incentive program there was actually penalties for not following excuse me penalties (laughs) are you kidding me so if they did do a go around and they burned more fuel than was expected on the flight there were actually implications Against the flight crew. Are you kidding me? That is ridiculous. Ridiculous! At which point, how can you say that this wasn't in the back of the captain's mind? Of course! If you're going to get penalized for using more fuel than you're supposed to, of course you're going to want to land the f***ing airplane! (laughs) Our neighbors love us right now. I'm sure they do. I (sighs) am... Here's the reason why you don't do that. There's a lot of reasons you don't do well, that. the first thing you should put forth, especially for Garuda, is safety. Yep. Safety should be key, especially from their um, they're, not great track record. And they're a flag carrier, too, which most flag carriers, that means they're representing the, the country. country. And you're deciding to put this incentive where if you land and you didn't burn as much fuel, you get a bonus. But if you burn too much fuel, oh, look out. You're going to get penalized for it. Excuse me? Right. Excuse me. You're putting people's lives in danger because you want to save money. This is arguably one of the worst anything ever implemented in aviation. Arguably. I would say that this is a complete disregard for safety and aviation in general. It's just a complete disregard for how aviation is intended to operate. This was entirely a money-making scheme. Because, don't get me wrong, Garuda has never been financially perfect. Most flag carriers aren't. There's a lot of reason for that. But, okay, you still can't sacrifice the safety of the passengers you're carrying, or you won't have an airline. The go-around option has to be an option. Right. It has to be there so people's lives don't aren't at risk. Right. The whole point of having a go around is to make sure that if you are at this point where you're too fast, you're too high, you can do a go around and everyone lands safely. 21 people? Yep. Died on this flight yep. because 
this captain was so dead set on landing. And he says it wasn't because of this, right? And maybe it wasn't. But more than this likely, is horrible. More than likely, this had a lot to do with it. Like, I get penalized if I decide to do a go-around and burn more fuel than this is supposed to have. Are you kidding me? Right. Get your fucking act together, Garuda. That's they- not that's not the captain's problem. That's your problem. And they did. Good. Yes. Garuda, <laughs> here's the thing. Garuda actually, after this accident, was forced to completely reshape. The and entire everything. Well, and they couldn't they fly in the EU. Yeah. From the ground up, they basically built themselves as a new airline over the course of two years following this accident, which we'll get to more later. And eventually, two years after the EU banned them, they lifted that ban. Yep, and they are now a more respected airline. Yeah. I'm not going to say... Uh, they're they're pretty respected nowadays, actually. Their fleet's becoming pretty modern compared to what it used to be. They're actually... Their training programs have become pretty rigorous. And as a flight carrier, management has basically been overturned. And it is just overall a completely different airline. That's good. Because money-making schemes don't work in airlines. Mm-mm. Not in commercial airlines. No. It doesn't work. There's this old saying in aviation where it's like, you want to know how to make a million dollars in aviation? Start as a billionaire. Yeah, you start with a billion dollars. <laughs> I mean, you have to spend money for safety. We've talked right. about that in our last episode with the question that we had. You have to spend the money so people are safe. Yep. So they feel safe flying on your airline. Yep. If they don't feel safe on your airline, they're not going to fly on your airline. And then you will go bankrupt, and you won't exist anymore. Right. So let's click back to the training side. They found that the Garuda Simulator Pilot Proficiency Check record showed no evidence that Garuda provided Boeing 737 simulator training for its flight crews covering vital actions and required response to the GPWS and Enhanced Ground Proximity Warning Systems, or EGBWS, alerts and warnings. So the training wasn't even there to just go around. Like we said... He didn't respond to those warnings at all, and it should have been immediate, without even thinking, just automatic, go around, as soon as he heard that alert. Well, and again, no wonder he didn't do that, if he wasn't trained on... He wasn't trained on it, so that was his argument. He said, it's because I didn't have the training. So, part of that I can understand. Should he have tried to land this plane anyway? No. No. He should know that he was too fast. He also briefed on a a missed approach. Yes, he did brief on a missed approach, and he briefed on all the things that were supposed to be set Just by saying. the time they landed. He also has how many hours? Right. The fact that he doesn't know how to go around, I feel like is... The fact that he doesn't BS? understand the GPWS also doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Right. At least it at is... some point along the way, you must yeah. know how that functions. 15 times? Are you kidding me? Even if you're not trained on it, you know that when it says, pull up, you pull, pull up. up. Yep. There's terrain below you. You're going too fast. Right. Because let me tell you, when you're normally landing, the GPWS doesn't go off. Right. And also, any basic private pilot student knows how to go around. So, along with these findings, there was a few things else that they found. And there was there was different sections of findings. So, I kind of summarized these other sections because they weren't as critical as that whole first section. So, the, one of the primary other things that they wanted to talk about was oversight of the airline because okay so the airline's not training but in most countries the government also has some sort of sway in that 
they have oversight. They go audit the airline and they go make sure that they're doing the things they're supposed to be doing and say they're doing and things like that. Like the FAA audits all the airlines in the United States. Right. And they make sure that they're actually following their own procedures for one. And two, they're following the written procedures of the FAA and the ICAO and the IATA. They have to follow these in order to participate as an airline. That's the whole point of having the FAA and regulations overall. Right. Period, yeah. So, okay, Garuda didn't have the training. Yes, boo on them. But also, boo on the lack of oversight because nobody caught this for so many years. And no wonder they had so many accidents. Yes. You're talking about they didn't have proper resource management training. Mm-hmm. They didn't have proper simulator training. Right. They didn't have proper alerts training. Like, right. hello, of course you're going to have issues. Right. And some of the issues they had, given like the river incident, wasn't the flight crew's fault 100 percent, right okay no, but, of course not but 152 so there's one yeah. thing so th- there's one thing we know about garuda is at the time they were doing everything possible not to spend money, money which comes with that incentive program and comes with lack of maintenance 27 flights on this airplane without fixing the left reverser like why i understand wanting to save money if you actually were at a risk. But one thing that... But maintenance is important. One thing that all the best airlines in the world understand is actually the more money you spend on training and safety, the more money you'll make. Because people feel safe on your airline. Well, they feel safe, you're safe on your airline, and then you present yourself as a good airline. Like, you, your, your airplanes are clean and well-maintained, and they, they fly well, and they're modern, and... You know, yes, you have to spend money to make money. That really old saying. But in aviation, it couldn't ring more true. And that's the whole big argument they're making there is kind of, you need to overhaul yourself to do this. And now Garuda really has. Now they have the opportunity to have these ultra-modern airplanes. They were one of the first customers and first operators of the A330-900neo. That's pretty cool. Good for them. But They got also, the max. That kind of thing. Like Kind of the more cost obvious thing is the higher your training and safety spending you don't lose entire airplanes right because you just did right because your crew knows what to do when they're in a situation that's dangerous and they feel comfortable with each other no matter who's in the captain's seat and who's in the first officer seat that if something goes wrong the person who isn't flying goes um right hello yo yo What's, so, what are you doing? <laughs> so even though it doesn't seem like a big deal that the EU banned them because, okay, they're really far away. They didn't have very, very many flights to the European Union. This was actually pretty key, though, because this was... Okay, Garuda lost an airplane, and they were dealing with a PR nightmare in their own country. And now they're dealing with a PR nightmare internationally, which is where they make even more of their money. Mm-hmm. So if they can't even fly to those big big-ticket international flights... Now they have to overhaul everything. This was the big, like, do something about it. And they did. no other airline that we've talked about before has ever had an incentive like that. No. Land and not burn as much fuel, you get a bonus. Right. But land and you use too much fuel, you get penalized. Right. I've never heard that before. It's pretty crazy. Why? That yeah. wouldn't happen in the United States. Right. That wouldn't happen in the EU. That wouldn't happen in... Probably most of Asia. It wouldn't happen in most places on Earth. So why do it here? Right. Money. So 
Now we're going to talk about something not related to the airline or any of this at all. We're going to talk about actually what happened after the accident, because they did find some really interesting things. Primary of which was that the emergency services couldn't get there. Right, that's a problem. That's huge. The emergency services at the airport couldn't deal with the accident just off the airport. They didn't have... It turned out they found that the equipment they had was completely insufficient for dealing with this kind of situation. That's insane. To be fair, they run it. They ran off the end of the runway. Right? Yes, they ran off the end of the runway. So you would think you should be able to get off the end of the runway. The ICAO actually has regulations for this that require the emergency equipment at any commercial airport of this level to be able to handle anything within a certain radius of the airport. Q Air Florida Flight 90, which some of you can't listen to because it's mm-hmm. a Miranda episode, but they had boats that they couldn't use. Because they couldn't work on ice. Yeah. That's yes, a problem. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. In the rice field, their emergency equipment couldn't operate. And that's insane. Their hoses were tearing, which I can't even imagine. That kind of stuff. Like, it, it, it was so bad. They found out later that was also because the airport had an airport emergency program, or an AEP, which all airports around the world generally have. They had an AEP, but it was extremely old. Not up to date at all. Nobody kept it up to date. It didn't meet any of the normal standards and the up-to-date standards required by the ACEO or around the world. So this had a lot to do with why emergency services couldn't get there and couldn't put out the fires quickly. And, and why some people may have lost their lives because yes, of smoke inhalation. More than likely. And it's also why some people's injuries were probably worse than they should have been because... They ended up staggering through a rice field trying to find their way out when the emergency services couldn't get to them. Yeah, that's a problem. Yes. So this was a big thing. So, all that said, that's that's the gist of the findings. Really big key things needed to change, mainly in Indonesia, but this was really important around the world. They did find that there was no runway end safety, or it wasn't sufficient. It was only 90 meters long. They really recommended 240 meters. So that the airplane, it's, what was it called, ECAS? EMAS. EMAS, yes. And we've talked about it before. It's kind of like a grid-like structure where the concrete collapses and the airplane comes to a stop before it even goes anywhere close to off the airport's boundaries. Perimeters, yes. Yeah. The engineered material arresting system. Right, engineered material arresting system. But but in a runway and safety area is also... That protected area between where the runway actually officially ends and where civilization begins. So that the airplane doesn't go into civilization? Right, so that it doesn't end up in a worse situation. With a runway and safety area, you you generally have all this distance where you have perhaps an extra bit of runway, say an overrun, which is not EMAS. It's just an extra bit of concrete. It's like like your tolerance. It's, say, your... uh, your curve on a test, this is how far you can go (laughs) before you run out of concrete. And so they had that, but it wasn't much. They needed more. And so runway and safety area also talks about that protected area. And generally at most airports here in the United States, there's a very large grass area at the end of the runway. We have a bunch of it out at DIA. (laughs) Yes. There's advantages of having... fields. (laughs) Yeah. Denver International is in the middle of nowhere. The people who would be at risk would potentially be spotters, and even then, the aircraft, the airplane would have to go really, really far. Yes. 
The causes. Yes, there's no probable cause. They just wrote a section called causes. So it's not even probable. Apparently it's definitive. Flight crew communication and coordination was less than effective after the aircraft passed 2,336 feet on descent after flap one was selected. Therefore, the safety of the flight was compromised. Thanks. Thank you for that obvious information. The pilot in command flew the aircraft at an excessively high airspeed and steep descent during the approach. The crew did not abort the approach when stabilized approach criteria were not met. Obviously. The pilot in command did not act on the 15 ground proximity warning system alerts and warnings and the two calls from the co-pilot to go around. Unfortunately. The co-pilot did not follow company instructions and take control of the aircraft from the pilot in command when he saw that the pilot in command repeatedly ignored warnings to go around. Because of training. Garuda did not provide simulator training for its Boeing 737 flight crews covering vital actions and required responses to GPWS and eGPWS alerts and warnings such as too low, terrain, and whoop whoop, pull up. Which is problematic. Other factors. I love how much whoop whoop, pull up has become a standard term in our report. <laughs> it's <laughs> actually, it is written in whoop whoop, pull up <laughs> in every report we've come across with it. Other factors. The airport did not meet ICAO standards with respect to runway and safety areas. There's no EMAS far enough past the end of the runway. Well, and just no area. Right. There's just yep. road. Yep. The airport did not meet the ICAO standard with respect to rescue and firefighting equipment and services for operation outside the airport perimeter and in swampy terrain, a.k.a. rice paddy. So they couldn't get to the planes. They could help people get out. Right. So there's two more sections left. The first one being recommendations. And I'm just going to whiz through my summary of the recommendations because actually the section after that is more important. Is more important and it's what they did about the recommendations. Good. So, recommendations. They recommend reviewing the fuel incentive program. No, so really? getting rid of it because yep. they're high they they recommended reviewing it and that came along with getting rid of it. That was their real recommendation. Was <laughs> that like, was their thing going, we're saying review, but really yes. we mean you can't have it. I feel like they just didn't write it out properly, but I feel like by review, what they were intending was review the... And eliminate. Well, review the... Existence? No, what do you or call the it? The morale? Verbiage. Yeah. The, the, the moral responsibility behind that? Like, what it's actually written... Yes. To say, like, what does it include? It includes the 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 fuel incentive and then the repercussions afterward. Yes. They're saying review the morals behind this and then get rid of it. They recommended GPWS training. Wow. What a concept. As well as the actions that come along with that and simulator training to embed that. So when it goes off, you go around. So we talked about this a little bit with the Garuda 152 flight, and I don't remember super a lot about that flight, to be perfectly honest, because it was a long time ago. It was at this point. Over a year ago. Yep. But they had GPWS problems, period. Yeah. So, like, look into it, fix it, make sure people know what to do with it, right. maybe? Right. They recommended changing the runway and safety area at Jojakarta. So, we'll get to that again in a minute. I'm just going to keep going here. But that was a key thing that really needed to change for the safety of that airport. They recommended more industry oversight, observing pilots during normal operations. So Having a check pilot on a flight? Yeah, and just within within Indonesia, 
doing what's necessary for the government and inspectors and such to have that oversight on the actual operations day, day of the airline. They can go look at manuals all day long and go, oh yeah, you have all this written, so it's probably great. You're probably doing just fine. And then they go check out the operations and not one person's following any of those procedures because they were never trained on it. Dude. Party foul. Yes. Recommend a review. Industry foul? Yes, industry foul. I like party foul better. Sure. It seems... Nicer. Sure. Fun. We'll go with we'll go with more, more fun. fun. There you go. <laughs> They recommended reviewing the rescue and firefighting equipment at Zojakarta and changing it to meet the ICAO standards. So that they could get into the rice paddy? Yes. This did eventually happen. Get more to that in a minute. They recommended ensuring that emergency equipment can operate in all areas within five nautical miles of the airport. So no matter what's within five nautical miles of the airport, they have to be able to operate within that area. Because that's the most likely place an airplane is going to crash. On takeoff or on landing. Yep. Friends, on takeoff or on landing. Yep. And they recommended reviewing the airport emergency plan and updating it and then performing practice operations on it. So. Practicing. What a concept. Yes. Okay. Now we're going to move on to the safety actions. That's what they called basically what actually changed. Yes. From the recommendations. So things that did change. The runway and safety area was changed a bit they didn't have the leeway to extend it any further they just don't have the room but they did make sure that they got a special authorization from the icao so now it's legal what they're doing anyways and it's understood it's written into the plates for the airport and it has to be part of the procedures for the pilots that fly in there they have so to they brief know on that it. there's no extensive emas at the end of the runway so right. if they overrun if they come in too fast and they overrun a runway it's potential that the emas won't stop them at the end right and so between emas or an overrun or grassy area they just have to know what to plan what to plan for it helps them plan for the actual distance they have and the safety area they need to have on the actual runway not past the end so they understand that if they have to do a go around they know what parameters they need to do to go around. Right. Or, and, and things of that sort. So one of the other things that changed here is they added an access road at the end of the runway for emergency services. They actually ran it over the ditch. So they filled in the ditch and they uh, opened up the median on the road. And then they filled in the ditch on the other side of the road so that they could go all the way across to the rice paddy without any issue at all in really quick order. That would go along with the fact that they also did get updated equipment from the per the ICAO standards. So over the course of years, eventually they replaced all of their emergency equipment and made it up to par with everything required for operating within five nautical miles of the airport. Another thing that changed, training procedures for pilots in Indonesia were reviewed and changed to be more rigorous. So Overall, this included the GPWS training and the CRM training, the big things that really lacked. And this is now audited, so they do they are required to make sure that they are doing these things. So that's huge, because those were the big, big, big breakdowns in the cockpit. Okay, the really big one, right? The fuel incentive programs were removed, and... Furthermore, Garuda published a notice to all pilots that they would not take any disciplinary actions against any crew member that performed a go-around for any reason. 
Wow, what a concept. You're doing a safety thing. Good job. We're not going to dock your pay. Actually, they're just following international procedures. Exactly. <laughs> Good job. You're doing the bare minimum. You're doing the, the thing everybody's supposed it's, to do. It's one of those things where pilots would assume that if they did a go-around before, there would be some action. And then they're like, oh, just kidding. There'd be no action. Yeah. This is one of those moments where Garuda was such had such a high visibility around the world because of everything that had happened that at this point they had to become the best, right? Yep. Well, at least as good as a lot of the carriers around the world. Yes. You're a flag carrier. Yeah. You set the precedent for your country. The fact that you're like, we're more into making money than safety. That's not a good thing to put in front of your country. Right. So that has changed a lot. They're not the safest airline in the world still, but they are way better. They're no longer on the list. They don't have of every seven country accidents in, in six months. They're right. also way better than the other airlines in their country that are not doing so hot right now. There are a few airlines that are discussed. There are a few airlines that have been trying to find loopholes in Indonesia because they are also trying to make money. Dude, not going to go there. It's not worth it. If you put in the money to do safety and everything properly mm-hmm. and training and safety, etc., you'll get money later. With a reputation. Because that's how that works in right. aviation. Right. So finally, the airport emergency plan. They hired somebody full-time at Jojakarta to maintain the document and the documentation for the airport emergency plan to always be up to date. And they now have to practice it regularly. Normally, like normal airports? Yes. So... Here's the one thing I read that was interesting. Normally, the ICAO requires airports to do this every two years. A major practice event every two years. Well, Jojakarta actually filed a special stipulation where they get to do it every three, but every single year, they also have to do a smaller on-airport practice. During during their big practice event every three years, they have to do an on-and-off-airport event. Nick and I have had the wonderful pleasure of volunteering to be part of such activities. Yes. We got to volunteer at Centennial Airport for an emergency training where we got to pretend to be plane crash victims. Yeah. It was great. I almost got to ride in a helicopter. Yeah, you were really close, but the weather was, was so close. the weather was bad that day. So the EU eventually lifted the ban because Garuda did overhaul itself completely. They even went as far as to basically rebrand. They changed their paint scheme and everything. I see what you mean. The rice paddy never really recovered. No. Mm-hmm. So I'll put a picture of this on the website, but we're going to put a picture of like the the EMAS at the end of the runway with a little bit of concrete that's I don't, is there. there in, this case, in this case, it's not EMAS. That's just an overrun. So oh, it's just okay. a RISA. It looks, so the square that's there looks like it might be EMAS, but apparently yeah, but it's, it's just grass. Well, but, that's actually concrete, but it's just an overrun. It's just it's nothing well, more no, than the, extra space. The lighter area it's, next to it. That, yes, is just grass. Yeah. But you'll see going forward is there's kind of like a weird path (laughs) Uh, beyond that. That's from this accident. Some of that's from this accident. And some of that actually is probably where the approach lights are for runway 27. And generally where the run where those are, there has to be access. But you'll see what we mean. Point is the foliage has not recovered. No. No. So you'll see from that. And then you'll also see the the road that goes beyond the airport, too. 
that is the access road so they can get to if everything. Look, if you look, there's a very small gap. There's a filled-in space, and there's a very small gap in the median. Yep, where that road goes across so that they can get there. Yeah. Because so. the ditch was too big, they couldn't get across. And it turned out that the fire crews actually were completely unfamiliar with that area on the Dude, outside of the fence. What the heck? That's how much they didn't know what to do. Because they got there and they're like, crap, there's a ditch. We don't know what to do. We can't get across. So they just started running their hoses across because they could see the flames. But they were unfamiliar with the area, so they also ran it across a bunch of things that poked holes in the hoses. Dude. It was a bad situation. That's horrible. Um, But they fixed it. So At Centennial Airport, I mean, I guess this is semi-public knowledge. You can see it from Google Maps. They have uh, two hollowed-out plane fuselages. Mm-hmm. We've Most... posted pictures of them before. Yes, yeah. we have. Um, They've recently painted them the color of the grass, and they did a <laughs> really good job, they actually. Did. They blend in the, so well. The dead grass, I might add. Yeah, they're like a beige color. So they used those hollowed-out dorniers? Yes, they're dornier 328s. Uh, for emergency practices, so they light them on fire. Yeah. Artificially. Yep. And then the volunteers all sprawl out around and be, ah, help me, I, there is a plane crash. And then you have a little placard around your neck that has all your symptoms. So when you go sign up, they hand you a placard. So they handed me two, one for me and one for Nick. And I gave Nick the broken arm because I have enough, quote unquote, medical knowledge to know that I would be internally bleeding and it was the worst injured out of everyone. And I would have gotten to ride the helicopter and I didn't because it was foggy and I'm upset. Yeah. So, moral of the story. <laughs> Pick the placard with the worst <laughs> symptoms. <laughs> if you have the option, I guess. Um, so, uh... so, one last thing on this whole thing. The criminal investigation. Oh, yeah. Oh. So, the criminal investigation took place during the investigation. Which so, is a terrible idea. And that idea. might be part of the reason why the captain was 100% full forward on why he made this decision. It is. Absolutely it is because it meant that he would go to prison. He had right. a family. So, I mean, he this the incentive that we've talked about could have been the reason and he could have said that if it was a normal investigation. However, because they decided at the beginning that right. it was his fault. Right. Even though they had no information. Right. That he just with he it's one of those things where if you've ever worked with people who um, are accused of something that they didn't do, or are autistic, or you get defensive real quick. Right. I am one of those and, people, and you shut down immediately, and you don't want to give information right. because you could potentially get in trouble for it. Right. So, so let's talk about what actually happened to him. So he went to court pretty quickly, and they very quickly also placed blame on him for all these different things they were finding in the investigation. Right. And they did end up convicting him of the crime of basically negligence and loss of life. So he was sentenced to two years. Two years. He was sentenced to two years. You would think, okay, two years for all of that? At that point, serve it. No. He appealed it on the grounds that they didn't have enough information. Correct. Anyone. And he never had to go to prison. Because they decided to try to do all of this while they were still investigating. Right. And I'm not saying that it was the captain's fault. Because part of it wasn't the captain's fault. A lot I think of it had a to lot do of with, it had to do with Garuda. Yes, a lot of it had to do with the airline. A lot of it had to do with the training and the incentive. 
But also, you have 13,000 hours. I mean, so, at so, that point, you've built so many connections in the industry around the world. You should know. Something you would you, think, right? Something that you may have... I mean, it's subtle, but you may have noticed in the reading of the causes is they say, what caused it? The captain. What caused it? The first officer not going around. But it doesn't say why they did these things. And that's because that's the more subtle cause is training. They like they didn't explicitly say that as a cause. Right. They just said the captain did this. First officer did this. Right. The ac- accident investigation reports are not to place blame. And so actually in this investigation, they were cited as having done that and actually they were countersued by the captain for defamation because they placed blame on him. So part of this, so you have to say a little bit is the captain's fault. A little bit's the first officer's fault. I think the majority of it falls on Garuda. I think majority of it falls on the fact that they had this incentive. They didn't have proper training. They had all of this stuff on the other side of the, you could say, quote unquote, cockpit, right? Where the simulator training wasn't there and the CRM training wasn't really there. And all of that wasn't helping them to make a good decision. Just like most things and most of these accidents we talk about, it's not one thing. No. And that's why placing blame on the captain is not except for the the flagship episode the flagship episode was completely the captain and the first officer's fault yeah that was that was all around but that's separate (laughs) but in this case to place blame entirely on the captain is definitely a a, a farce because it's not entirely his fault there's this was a storm of problems there were so many things wrong and again i really do think the majority of it is garuda it is. It really is. And, and you can. And he you didn't know. say that this incentive was a thing, but he didn't say that yeah. because he could. That could have been put against him in law, in yeah. a court of law. Well, so. and you could argue that the the airline is really it's the atmosphere they created, right? So, but there's no way. There's no way to prove any of that other than the fact that they just didn't train. That's big problem. But so that was Garuda Flight Two Hundred. Good job. Good that job. was a pretty easy one to remember. It was easy to remember. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our patrons that support us every month and continuing to contribute to us. Thank you for those of you who submit stories and questions and etc. And Thank continue you. to listen. Thank you to those of you who recommend stuff. Future word of warning. If you s- submit something right now in the month of January, it will not be scheduled until August. Right. So either cool your jets or be prepared to be really patient. We really don't mind. Oh, we don't mind at working all. Working so far out because it definitely helps us keep we our schedule. We don't have to think about what we do next. But I'm just saying don't get frustrated when you say, hey, you should do this flight. And we tell you, oh, it won't be till September. But if you recommend it to us not as a patron, it will get put all the way at the end of the list. Yeah. But if, if you... you recommend it to us as a what? What level? A first-class patron. First-class patron. We try to move it up. We will try to move it up. It doesn't necessarily mean it'll be right away. It'll probably be moved up at least a couple months. Yes, because there are a lot of first-class patrons that are recommending things to us. Thank you. they've already filled in a lot of this time coming up. And if you ever want to know what's included with um, patronage for us, all of that information is on the website. You can also look up Hard Landings on Patreon, and it will pull up for you. Because for those of you that don't really understand Patreon at all, you help us keep this going by contributing a little bit of money, but you also get a lot of things in return. 
I don't know. I mean, I know some of you haven't been listening from the beginning. Maybe some of you are working backwards, weirdos. But You're like me. Thanks. <laughs> or you're, you're jumping around, also weirdos. Also like me. Thanks. <laughs> but that said, just so you know, if you've lost track along the way, you get a lot of things with doing these different tiers of being a patron with us. So you get different incentives. You get extra, a lot of extra stuff. We produce a lot of extra audio for you to hear every month. And the more patronage we get, the more benefits we can create. So right. Yes. right now... Eventually, there will be a merch benefit when we have merch. Yeah, our current goal is $500 a month, and we'll start a big merch movement. We will try to do that. Bef- we'll try to have merch before that point, because we're starting to work on it now. But $500 means we can sustain having a merch store and keeping it open all the time. So. Yes. So, and then another thing I'm going to throw out there is I would like actually more recommendations for minisodes, little right. mini episodes, because we've only done one so far based on a recommendation, which was great. We need these recommendations. They're yeah. short, they're different, and they're extra content for you if you're a patron. And we can cover things that aren't commercial. We can cover military to an extent. Yes. We can cover general are. aviation. Helicopters, those kinds of things. Please send those to me, and I will cover, in short, these episodes. Also, real quick, if you want something to be included in a tier on Patreon, you have an idea, you think it should be included, let us know. Oh man, we struggled to come up with the benefits. <laughs> yes. And we don't have we only have one physical benefit. We have a patch we will send to you of our logo. If which is you pretty are cool. A flight crew member. We've only sent one ever. We and we would love to send more. So many. But again, there could be merch like discounts and stuff in the future, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But if you have an idea where you would like something to be included that isn't currently included on one of the tiers, let us know. And we will try to see where it fits in in the tiers we have currently. Yeah. And I, as always, thank you for listening through everything, if you got to this point. We appreciate you, and we understand that not everyone can be a patron, but we love people listening to us anyway. <laughs> yeah, we've had pretty good listened, listenership lately. Yeah. So thanks. And we really appreciate it. Uh, stay safe. Stay healthy. If you're in the United States specifically, please wear a mask so that everything can be... Calm down. Yeah. We'll go with calm down. (laughs) And we will catch you guys next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.